Let's turn to the Word of God now. Let's open up to what, for many people and many ages, has been the most well-known verse in the Bible, John 3.16. Let's go there. I think perhaps John 3.16 is being replaced in the late 20th and early 21st century by a verse in Matthew, judge not lest you be judged. But uh, I'm going to, personally, I'm going to stick with John 3.16. How about you? Hallelujah. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Praise the Lord. Many times in a verse this long, we can concentrate on the beginning of the verse and almost like uh, someone's voice drops off as they're talking, drops off at the end, we can lose the end of the verse. We stand in awe of the Father's love, no doubt about it. We stand in awe of the Son's obedience. Praise God. I would like this morning to take the different parts or phrases of this verse one at a time and work our way to the to the question, how important is the everlasting life part of this verse? I'll call it heaven. If you back up to verse 12, you'll see that Jesus is talking about heavenly things. So I'll call everlasting life heaven. What does heaven mean to us? Across all languages in the world, writers and speakers tend to arrange the parts of a sentence from second most important part of this of the sentence, not of truth, but of the sentence, to the third most important part of the sentence in the second position. But in the final position stands the most important part of the sentence, the part of the sentence that gets the greatest emphasis. That might be counterintuitive to you, but it's practiced by skillful communicators in language after language in the world, saving the most emphasized part of of the expression for last. We can see what's last in this verse. Should not perish, but have everlasting life. Well, that's a a little uh, forecast of uh, where I'm going with this. What does heaven mean to us? Not so much the question, what is heaven, but What does it mean to us? And like I said, I'm going to go through the parts of this verse. Kind of a Spurgeon fashion, who also takes little parts of a verse, oftentimes just one word, and expounds on them in the order they come in the Word of God. Let me call this verse the Apostle John's 
mission statement of Christ. There's a little bit of controversy over who actually is saying John 3.16, whether it's Jesus who's saying it because he's been just recently talking, or if it is the Apostle John's commentary on what Jesus just said. And actually, I believe it's the latter. I think that these are actually John the, John the Apostles, John the writer of the book of John. It's his comments about Jesus, God's love, the call of Jesus. But I'll call this the mission statement of Christ. John's mission statement of Jesus Christ. John's rendition of it. Uh, A mission statement should have an objective and it should express core values. And I think that this John 3.16 fits that description. Let's take the Take it phrase at a time. First of all, for God so loved the world. We might take this as a way to express how God feels about us. And that's because in our culture, we think of love as a feeling and an emotion and a sentiment. Well, it's a lot better than hate. I wouldn't like it very much if it said, so God so hated the world. It's a lot better than anger. I'm glad this verse doesn't say, for God so was so angry with the world. But love in the Bible, especially this particular set of Greek words for love, agape and agapao, that's a noun and a verb, is actually more interested in what love does. The fruit of love and the decision of love, the commitment of love more so than the feeling or the sentiment of love. I think when God looked at us in our sinful state, he didn't look at us and say, oh my goodness, aren't they so charming? Aren't they so delightful? I've just got to have them. Like we're the puppy in the window, you know. How much is that puppy in the window? I don't think God was playing that game. But he was committed to us in love. I think we have a very good English word to express that concept, and I almost wish the Greek word agape was translated this way instead of love. I wish it was translated devotion. For God was so devoted to the world. The actions are of greater interest than the sentiment behind them. We could ask the question, is this verse about telling me that God loves me? Or is this verse about showing me that God loves me? The word so, for God so loved the world, means that there's got to be something more coming. The verse is not going to stop there. So loved the world, what? Fill in the blank. And then we find what God did out of love. This kind of love takes action. Amen? 
Let's look at the next phrase. It says that he gave his only begotten son. We're really getting somewhere in the verse. Here is the great act of love. Here is the great price that God is willing to pay for our salvation. It's hard to think of a greater gift that God could give that would come from a greater depth in his heart and come from a greater devotion. His own son, his own precious son. Even so, we may still be wondering why. Why? What is the result of this action? Take it even further. What does the gift of God's Son do? Is it a gift on a shelf to admire, up on a shelf, a a revered gift to honor and uh, idolize? Is it a souvenir of God's love? Or does this gift of God's love actually do something, accomplish something? We still, even though we've read up to this point, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, we are still wondering about the plan and the purpose for God's action. Many churches have crosses in them. We've chosen not to put a cross up in the front in our church behind me. Uh, Many churches put crosses there and they stand as emblems of God's love. There is certainly nothing wrong with uh, having an emblem of God's love, a symbol of God's love there. But this verse indicates to us that God's love and the, and the death that Jesus experienced for us are more than an emblem of God's love, but that they actually accomplish something concrete. The death of Jesus Christ is not only a demonstration of God's love, it is also accomplishing something tangible, something concrete. The death that Jesus experienced on the cross was not only a gesture of love, It's not only a symbol of love. There was more to God's plan and Christ's mission than a figure of speech. The cross as a symbol or a a metaphor for God's love. And that brings us to the last part of this verse, which I've already called a mission statement for Christ. It says that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It's at this point in the sentence that we're reaching more deeply into the mission that God was on, the plan and purpose that God was working out. Why did God do this? that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Why did God love mankind that 
Whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Why did God send his son, give his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life? This is what God was trying to accomplish through love. Can I hear an amen? This purpose of the mission statement comes in two parts. The first part is who it's directed to, whosoever believeth in him. Whoever believes. The promise is to whoever believes. This is, we could call it, the condition. This is the necessary condition to receive eternal life rather than perish. It's what we do in view of the love of the Father and the giving of the Son. In order for the love of the Father and the giving of the Son to accomplish their purpose, we have to believe. If we don't believe, the condition is unmet and the promise won't be available. We have to believe. Believe doesn't mean to just look at the stool and say, oh, I'm waiting for the camera. Um, Can you get a better angle than that? Never mind. mind. (laughs) To believe, that's better. Definitely a big improvement there. Oh, it's got a seat. It's a stool, no doubt about it. It's got legs. It's got bracing around it. Oh, it spins. It's that kind of stool. I recognize uh, many qualities of a stool here. I believe it's a stool. You're not going to clap for that. It's no big deal to identify this as a stool by its qualities. I can say, I believe the stool. I believe it's a stool. I believe in the stool? Well, I don't know if I would say that yet. John 3.16 says that whoever believes in him, believes in him, what have you got to do? You've got to sit in it. Now I believe in it. That's believing in the stool, right? Put my whole weight on the stool. Wow, that was brave. Not really. I trust the stool. It's a good stool. It's a strong stool. What if I do this? Ah, what a beauty. Nice stool. Beautiful four legs, little rubber things on the feet. That's great. Spins, and what a cushy seat. And somebody comes to me and says, well, sit in it. What good is it to you if you don't sit in it? And I say, oh, no, no, no. I'm not sitting in it. Well, why not? (laughs) It could collapse, and I'll fall, and I'll, I'll get hurt. No, you won't get hurt. You could see it's a perfectly good stool. Sit in it. Oh, no, no. Sorry, I'm not sitting in it. Notice, I don't believe in the stool. I believe it's a stool, 
but I don't believe in it. I've identified all the parts and pieces. We can identify all the parts and pieces of Jesus. He's a holy man, a kind man, a truthful man. He's a one of a kind. He's an unselfish man. Okay, now commit your life to him. Oh, no, no, I don't know about that. I'm not doing that. Well, you believe him, but you don't believe in him. If you believe in Jesus, you'll put your whole weight of your being, you'll rest your life on him. You will get in him all the way. Hallelujah. You won't sit in the stool like this. A lot of Christians want to do it this way. Oh, I was trusting in the stool. You were not. Get in all the way. Trust Jesus. Trust Him with your life. He'll be your rock. He'll support you. He'll hold you up. He'll give you rest. Trust in Him completely. Amen? Notice this is the condition. To not perish, but have everlasting life. It's become vogue to say that God has unconditional love for us. It's become very popular and people are aching and longing and desiring for us to say that. Just say it. Just say it. God has unconditional love for us. But I see a condition right here. There's a condition. Believe. You've got to believe. And what's the result if you don't believe? The default is for perishing. The default is perish. So, God loves those who perish, but God's love isn't doing a lot of good for them. What is the purpose of believing? And it's the final and most emphasized position in the sentence. Perhaps that we think of as an afterthought sometimes, that we should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now we know the mission. Now we know the purpose. We, now we know where God's love was headed, why God's love was expressed, where the gift of his son was headed. Now we know the destination. Now we know the objective. Now we know the outcome of believing, the bottom line, the result, the outcome, what God was working toward, that we would not perish, but that we would have everlasting life. Praise God. What does heaven mean? Heaven is everlasting life. Perishing is everlasting death. It's, it's, Jesus called it hell. But what does heaven mean? For one thing, to begin with, heaven means mission accomplished for God. His mission is accomplished. It means achievement for God. More than feeling love, and wanting the best for us. I think God feels love for everyone. I think God wants the best for everyone. But 
This provides the accomplishment that God is working toward out of his love. For God, our perishing is the possible but unwanted outcome of our lives. Perishing is possible. Put whatever other adjectives uh, you need onto that besides possible, probable, perishing. It's the given. It's our, it's our natural state, perishing. But it's not what God wants, and it's not what his love is working for. It's not his objective. Our living forever is the wanted outcome. Do you want to live forever? How do you feel about dying? How do you feel about heaven and hell? Perishing is bad. But dying, it's a little different. Dying's a little different than perishing. Christians die too. This morning we sang the song, Oh, what a day that will be when my Jesus I will see. I was uh, at a man's deathbed. You remember him, Brother Phil Dillman? He was on his deathbed. He was hours from breathing his very last. And he sang that song with his last energy reserves. He actually sang that song. Oh, what a day that will be when my Jesus I will see. A few hours later, he was gone. He wasn't annihilated. He wasn't a big question mark. He was gone home. He went home. Heaven is home. Heaven means God has had his way. Heaven means God has accomplished his purposes. And to us, heaven means home. Home. I have travel guides, a few travel guides for Israel. I have a, some travel guides for Greece, and Italy, different parts of Italy. Travel guides typically tell you what you really need to see and what you should avoid. The Bible is somewhat of a travel guide to heaven and to the other place, to hell. Jesus actually tells us more about hell than anyone else in the Bible. And that's because he wants us to avoid it. It is all the same. He wants us to avoid it. His motives are always the same. They're right in keeping with his mission as expressed in John 3.16. He wants us to avoid perishing. There it is. There's the perishing right there in the mission statement that they won't perish There it is right there. It's not what God wants, but it's what will happen if we don't believe. Jesus, along with the Father, wants to accomplish something. He wants to have more people live with him forever rather than more people perish without him forever. Amen? Listen to how Jesus talks about heaven. Uh, he said, these are all quotes from Jesus. Joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Hereafter ye shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. I'm the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. There is in John 3.16 the perishing part. Hell. For some, that's too harsh to talk about. For some, they'd rather not think about that, even though Jesus... reveals so much about hell that we never would have known without him. He teaches us quite a lot about hell. Then there is the live forever part. Heaven, I'm calling it heaven. Is it only wishful thinking that Christians might use as a painkiller to kill the pains of this life? to dampen our mourning, our grief, and to give us comfort from our fears. Is that what heaven means? Is it to use only when comfort is needed during difficult times of life? Is that it? Use only as needed. Painkiller. Painkiller, it's right on the bottle. Use only as needed. Use as needed. When the pain is strong, use this. Is that what heaven means? Use heaven when you're in pain. It's great for that. It's great for that. It's great to have the promises of God give you comfort when you're in pain. Give you uh, solace when you're grieving. It's, It's great for that. But is that it? Or is that even the main thing? A last resort? In John 3.16, everlasting life. This isn't so bad going over a verse that we all know so well, is it? It could be edifying, can't it? Everlasting life. He'll not perish, but have everlasting life. Uh, Other translations substitute the word eternal for everlasting. But all the translations that I checked, English translations, contain the word life, and that is a translation of the Greek word zoe. Zoe expresses the special kind of life that comes from God. It's a special kind of life that not everyone has. Everyone who is born receives a certain kind of life that when they receive that soul life, it never ends. That soul life will go on and on and on. But while everyone who is born has that kind of life, only the second born, the twice born believers, only the born again believers in Christ have this special kind of Zoe life that comes as a gift from God. Colossians 2.13 says, When you were dead in your sins, God made you alive with Christ. So clear there. 
you were dead in sins. Ephesians does a great job on this. It says you were dead in sins and then you walked according to these lusts and those desires and you did this and you did that. It doesn't sound like it's describing a dead person. That's a very busy person who's very busy doing a lot of things, following a lot of passions and desires and lusts. It sounds like a very motivated and passionate person. But that person is dead in sins because they lack that special kind of life that can only come from God and we must be born a second time in order to receive that life from God. Brothers and sisters, God rules the world. Not nations, not companies, not economies, not technologies, and not the devil. The devil rules the world under the rule of God. God has control over the devil as well. The boundaries of God's kingdom stretch across and ignore the boundaries of man. The boundaries that man has created with wars and parties and histories. Man has established many boundaries in this world, but God's kingdom stretches across all boundaries and offers eternal life to all who believe in him. Praise God. The church should have black and white and brown, should have immigrants and residents of the nations in which we find the church. It should have visitors. It should have people of every tongue, every race, every economy, every educational background, every culture. Amen? Hallelujah. All people start dead in their sins. But all people have the potential to believe and come to God's life and to live forever. Notice John 3.16 promises us that we can live forever. This is not existing forever. This is living forever. You're going to live. I, I like one sister. She got a brand new trailer up at camp. She was sitting out front in her lawn chair, or her uh, you know, zero-gravity chair, right back, and she goes... This is living. Yeah, the promise to us is living forever. Brothers and sisters, your eternity will include dreaming, creating, building, loving, accomplishing, enjoying, communicating, bettering, sharing, serving, ruling, eating, telling stories, remembering, learning, solving, and praising the God who made it possible. Amen? You are going to be living forever. You are not going to be bored forever. You're going to be busy forever. Enjoying. Did I say eating? Okay. Wanted to make sure. My goal this morning is to prove to you in the Word of God that Jesus was fiercely devoted to eternal life, heaven, far and above any issue or concern of the temporal world. Far above. Go to Matthew 16, 21. Hallelujah. Praise God. Do you love Jesus? 
Matthew 16, 21. Jesus is working out the mission that he's been sent on. And so in Matthew 6, 21, it says, From that time forth, Jesus began to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Guys, I'm going to be killed. We're going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to Jerusalem. The scribes and the Pharisees are going to be really rough on me unto death. They're going to kill me. Now, he didn't stop there. He said, I'm going to be raised again the third day. Then we see Peter is upset. Peter is upset to hear Jesus saying, they're going to kill me. I don't think, Jesus, I don't think Peter paid a lot of attention to the raised again on the third day part. I think he got hung up on the really bad news of it. I'm going to be killed. I, I've never been told by another human being in all my life, I'm going to be killed. But I'm going in anyway. I know, it's, I know it has happened. I know historically it has happened. Soldiers, Firemen, think of the heroes that ran up the World Trade Center towers. When they were coming down, they were going up. I know, I know there's precedence for this. I've never heard, personally, anybody tell me, I'm going there and I'm going to be killed there. That's upsetting. And Peter was upset by it. Verse 22, Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. No way. I'm not accepting this. I I am not accepting this. You are not destined to go to Jerusalem and die. And you know how Jesus replied. But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. For thou art an offense unto me, and thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Remember what I told you? To show you in the word of God how Jesus is fiercely devoted to eternal life in heaven far and above any issue or concern of this temporal world. Why suffer many things and be killed and raised again? to accomplish something heavenly, to accomplish something eternal. The suffering and the dying part was something temporal meant to win our eternal salvation by paying the atoning price for our sins. Being raised on the third day of his death was to justify our faith in him and his effectiveness. Have faith in his effectiveness. Sit in the chair. Sit totally in the chair. I don't know if I should. I don't know if it'll hold me up. Look, he rose from the grave on the third day. You can trust him completely with your soul. Get totally in. Put your full weight upon him. His death means more than any other man or woman's death. 
on the behalf of another. The soldiers go into battle knowing that their uh, mission is an impossible mission and that they're not coming back. They're going to die there. It's, it's great heroism. And the firemen, they perish in the flames. It's great heroism. But the firemen, because they were themselves sinful, could not save our souls. The soldiers, because they were themselves faulted, unholy, sinful, they could not die an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Their death is heroic, but it cannot accomplish the thing that Jesus' death could accomplish. Look how fierce Jesus is about carrying on with his plan. Get thee behind me, Satan. Satan's perspective seems like such a nicer perspective than heaven's. Satan's perspective is, oh, no, 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 no. You know, you're not going to go there. You're not going to suffer. If, if need be, we just won't go. There are ways around this. Satan can talk nice, knowing that his nice talk can spoil the mission of God. He offers niceties. Let's not have that pain stuff, Jesus. That's Satan's voice to Jesus. Satan's perspective seems nicer when compared to heaven's, but Jesus accepts heaven's perspective. God's concern is not that Jesus will have an easy time of it. I've got to make sure my son has an easy time of it. He's my son, after all. I've got to protect him. I've got to watch over him. I've got to keep him. I've got to keep him in comfort. I don't want him to suffer. I don't want him to have pain. But God was not a, a helicopter parent. Jesus accepted that God wasn't going to guarantee an easy time of it. What God was up to was a much greater, long-lasting mission to provide a path to eternal life for humankind. Let me uh, paraphrase Jesus' response like this, kind of paraphrase and expand on it. The response is, I'm not valuing these days of suffering like I am cherishing the impact my suffering will have afterwards. I'm looking at the value of what it's going to accomplish over here, and I'm looking at the suffering after I have to go through over here. Which one is heavier? Oh, what I'm going to accomplish, the salvation of many, many souls. I can endure a tough time in order to accomplish that. The importance of eternal life is controlling and orienting Jesus thinking about his imminent experiences. Likewise, brothers and sisters, I would like to encourage you this morning to think of heaven and eternal life as more than a painkiller that we pull out when we're in pain. 
but instead that it be a compass, something that orients your life, something that gives direction to your life and controls your life now. See, this is the thing that Jesus is doing now. He's letting heaven and eternal life control what he does now, in that moment. You've heard me use this analogy before. Your life is like the smallest crack in the longest highway. The longest highway in North America is Route 90. It's only a few hundred yards away from here. Route 90, it's the New York State Thruway as it passes through New York State. It starts in Boston, Massachusetts, and it goes all the way to Seattle, Washington. It's over 3,000 miles long. Think of that as an analogy for eternity. Your life fits in a crack on Route 90. Your whole life fits in a crack. Your whole life in this world. Not a pothole. You don't even deserve a pothole. You don't even get a pothole. You don't even get a very big crack. Put the 10-ton vibratory roller over the macadam, and you know the crack in between two little tiny black pebbles that get driven together by that roller? That's where your life is. So the sister was fine at camp in her gravity, anti-gravity chair. This is the life. But of course, we could say to her, well, how is it inside your, not a pothole, this little crack between two pieces of stone that you have on the highway of eternity? Pretty nice in there. A crack, you need a magnifying glass to, you, to see it. How do you like your space? Let's go to 1 Corinthians 7.29. This is not only a way of thinking for Jesus. This is not only something that Jesus fiercely hangs on to and defends and protects. His view of eternity, his view of eternal life, his, his aloofness from the quality of his life. 1 Corinthians 7.29 But this I say, brethren, the time is short. There it is right there. The time is short. It remaineth that both they that have wives be as though they had none. The time is so short you can't even put your husband or your wife as the number one thing that you serve in life. Your devotion has to be to Christ such that it's almost like you didn't have a husband or a wife. Why? Because the time is short. Am I reading the verse correctly? Verse 30, they that weep as though they wept not. The time is so short, you don't even have time to be a regular guy or a regular woman and be upset about things for a while. There's not time to be upset about things in this world for a while. Let it go and get to the work of God because time is short. Talk about being fierce and maintaining an eternal perspective and getting our eyes off 
of what's going on in this temporal world. They that rejoice as though they rejoice not. This is a double-edged sword. Not only are you supposed to not get all taken up in your pains and your sorrows and your difficulties because time is short and we need to serve the Lord while we can, but you're also not supposed to be kind of all taken up in rejoicing. Oh, I got this new thing and I got that new job and I got this new and that new and this great, wonderful thing happened to me and you're not supposed to go overboard rejoicing about it. Why? Because the time is short and eternity matters a lot more than what's going on before you cross the death line. This is about life before the death line and life after the death line. Where is the time short? After the death line? Oh no. After the death line, time is eternal. When is life short? Life is short on this side of the death line where you have 10 years, some people, 20 for some, 40 for some, 80 seems like a lot. Sister Doris Vakula is 96. That's a lot. That's a chunk of change. But for her too, the time is short. Her whole life is short compared to eternity. A crack in Route 90. And the, the final uh, expression in verse 30 is, and they that buy as though they possess not. If heaven is only wishful thinking that we use to comfort ourselves when a loved one has passed on, we're not giving the unbeliever anything on which to start his journey to heaven. He's really not going to be moved by us. He's really going to see it for what it is. A painkiller. And everybody's got their own kinds of painkiller. What the unbeliever needs to see is that we base today's decisions, today's actions on our belief that this life is not all about this life. That this life is about the life that is to come after we die. Show that to the unbeliever. Show God's mission that we would not perish but have everlasting life. That we would not perish but have everlasting life. Let the unbelievers say of us, whoa, he really does believe in heaven. Not just at funerals, but the way we live our life every day. He really does believe in everlasting life. Whoa! He's committed. Like Peter, like, I'm sorry, like Jesus before Peter, Peter was, Peter was saying, Lord, you know, chill a little bit. Let's not, let's not take this mission too far. Let's be reasonable here. Let's, let's avoid the trouble. You know, you shouldn't go to Jerusalem. I don't know what Peter's plan was. Skip going to Jerusalem or talk nicer to the scribes and Pharisees and priests. Maybe, you know, uh, get a, have a, call a meeting with them where they would have a, work out a couple compromises and they could be best buds or something. I don't know what Peter was thinking. Maybe to call down fire from heaven and eat up everybody who opposed him. We want to prioritize eternal life because we prioritize the goal. 
the destination. We're looking at the destination. We're headed somewhere. It's very interesting for us. It's very challenging because there's a part of us that's going to want to hurry. Let's get out of here. Let's go. And there's another part of us that's going to... And, and the hurrying part is, let me work. I'm going to work like mad. I'm going to work like a fiend. I'm going to, work, I'm going to just wear myself out because time is short. Then there's the other side of it because it's a two-edged sword. The, the other side is chill, relax, take comfort. God loves you. This is about you getting eternal life. You can't work your way there. You can't climb your way there. Just, just relax. Take comfort. Be at peace. You know, so there's two things happening at once. Like uh, it says in uh, Philippians, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then it says in Ephesians, uh, saved by grace through faith, which no man can deserve. You know? I don't know. I, I struggle with that balance every day of my Christian experience. I don't have the answers how to, how to make one of those two go away and live completely in the other. But I'll tell you this, death is not bad. What I mean is, breathing your last, shutting your eyes, breathing your last, your heart beating for the last time in this world is not bad. It's the passageway. It's the portal. It's the door to eternity. It's graduation. It's graduation in the sense that it's getting to your destination. It's going home. Home. It's not bad to go home. It's good to be here and serve the Lord and help chip in on accomplishing God's plans. It's very good to use your life in order to work for God. But it's not bad to cross the line and go to the other side. It's not bad to go home because our destination is not here. Our destination is not a good job. There, I got it. It's not a certain pay grade. There, I got it. The pay grade I always wanted. If I could only make so much, because I'll tell you, as soon as you make that much, you want to make more. It's not getting houses and lands. It's not, ah, there, I'm married happily and ever after. Me and Cinderella, hand in hand, It's not a comfortable retirement. That is not your destination in life, a comfortable retirement. These are not destinations for a believer. These are, maybe we could call them waypoints. The waypoint is not the ultimate destination. The waypoints, you know, you go from waypoint to waypoint until you arrive at your destination. Maybe these things are waypoints along the way, but your destination is eternal life. Hallelujah. We're not called to wander about until we're called to the other side. We are called to work at getting there. Uh, We have Pasta Sunday. 
every dinner, every uh, uh, Sunday, we have dinner at my house, pasta Sunday, tradition, long tradition. You guys have all heard about it before. And I've been to many other dinners at other people's homes. And I noticed there's sort of like two kinds of people. There are those just, who just kind of hang out, chat, watch the hockey game, read the newspaper, while waiting for somebody to finally shout, dinner, then they'll get up and they go to dinner. There's, that's kind of person, that's type one. They just kind of hang out until somebody calls them to dinner. Type two is, they set the table, put out the silverware, arrange the drinks, put the ice cubes in a bowl, fold the napkins, stir the pot, empty this, fill that, make sure the table gets well supplied. In other words, they help the dinner to take place. Which one are we called to be, brothers and sisters, type one or type two? Type one who just hangs out until you die and go into eternal life. Or type two that helps set the table and call more visitors to the table. Find more guests for the table. Jesus said in Luke 10, 20, In this rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. If we're hurting and struggling now, it might seem to you that we are in our personal Armageddon. Even if you could pick one second of your life, the best second of your life, and allow that one best second to determine the quality of the rest of your days, you could pick the most fulfilling second, the happiest second of your life, the richest second of your life, the greatest anticipation you ever felt, your greatest sense of satisfaction, or your time of greatest sacrifice when you were so heroic. And when you chose that one second, your whole lifetime would be that second for your whole lifetime. The one second determines the quality of the whole. I want to tell you that that is not like your decision to serve Christ. Your decision to serve Christ is worked out in a lifetime that challenges and changes the quality of your eternity. Yes, in terms of one second determines the whole lifetime. Yes, that's an analogy for what's going on here. In your short lifetime, you determine heaven or hell for yourself. On the other hand, it's not just take a second of your life and that determines the whole. You've got to work it out. You've got to, you've got to live out your life for Jesus Christ. The little does determine the much, but the little is still pretty big to us, isn't it? Philippians 3.20 in the King James says, For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The word translated conversation is politoma, and it is very commonly translated citizenship. Philippians 3.20 in the NIV, but our citizenship is in heaven. The meaning of heaven is a now meaning. 
Brothers and sisters, it is a now meaning. It says here in Philippians 3.20, but our citizenship is in heaven now. We are citizens of heaven now. The believers are citizens of heaven. And that citizenship will color every decision of your life. It'll impact the things you care most about. It will mold your prayer life. It'll determine your sacrifices and your schedule. The time of opportunity is now and it is short. Such a brief season in which we can serve the Lord. It is not only for the sister Doris Vakulas and the sister Teresa Wickerts who are so near to the end. It is hardly any longer for you than it is for them in terms of eternity. My days are like a shadow that declineth, and I am withered like grass. But thou, O Lord, shall endure forever in thy remembrance unto all generations. The Apostle Paul said in Romans 8, 18, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And the same as the sufferings are not worthy to be compared with the glory, either are the blessings. Either are the blessings of this life worthy to be compared with the glories of eternity. May we have the wisdom to number our days. While I live, I will bless the Lord. I will sing praises unto my God while I have my being. This morning, brothers and sisters, I am a dying man talking to dying men and women. You might have gotten some bad news from the doctor. The doctor says, you're going to die? Um, I don't have a medical degree, but I'll make an appointment for you and you can give me a lot of money and I'll tell you you're going to die. <laughs> We're all going to die. We're all going to die. And in the final analysis, life is short for all of us. When did you ever think you were not going to die? A doctor had to open your eyes? Dying is a graduation into the eternal realm with God. It's going home. Choose heaven now. Choose heaven every day. Again and again, choose heaven. Again and again, choose eternal life. In a score of decisions that you make every day, prioritize eternal life. For that is God's mission. That whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. That is God's mission in this world. That is the mission of Christ in this world. And we are the body of Christ who should walk in that mission as well. Amen? Amen. Oh Lord, in the name of Jesus, we thank you for each day that we breathe on this side. Each day that we have to serve you on this side. And we pray that each day would be a step to the other side and a step building treasure in heaven 
a step in recognition of your promises and your mission. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Have a wonderful Memorial Day. We'll, we will be here tonight for baptism. And who, else, who knows what else will go on tonight? Praise the Lord.